I was joking that it was a cheery psalm, of course. But Psalm 88 is frequently described as a gloomy psalm, the saddest psalm in all of the Psalter, unrelieved by a single ray of comfort or hope, stark and lonely and pain-riddled. That's how the commentaries describe the psalm we're going to look at. So if you haven't turned there already, would you please take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 88? really would much rather you take God's word for what he has to say than my word for it. So um, turn to Psalm 88. Now, as you do, I want to ask the question that may not be obvious to you. And that is, why would a church take a whole Sunday and talk about Psalm 88? Why would we spend our time reading depressing things like this and talking about it. Well, <laughs> the most obvious reason, one I don't want you to miss, is that we are committed to um, expository teaching, which means we're just going to take the Scripture as it comes and try and show you what's there rather than make up our own talk from our own ideas. We're going to try and expose what's in the Scripture. And it does happen that, well, Psalm 88 is next. So that's the reason. That's not the only reason. It's not even the best reason, but it's a reason nonetheless. The best reason is that preaching through the Bible like we do forces us to do things that are good for us that we might not choose to do otherwise like Psalm 88. And so why is this dark psalm good for us? Well, there are a couple of reasons that I want to make sure that you sort of get up front. And that is, first of all, everyone has to deal with the world as it is. We can't, it doesn't do any good to deal with the world as you imagine it to be or as that you hope it will be when, in fact, it's hard. When, in fact, there is darkness and sadness and brokenness. And so if everyone's got to deal with it, if that's the way it really is, then Christianity has to be able to deal with the world as it is, not as the world, not as the world in which we... Um, pretend for it to be. And I, I think there's a lot of pretending that is done in the name of Christianity. And if the world is a dark and sad place, for us to leave that out of our preaching or our Bible reading would leave the church ill-equipped for anything that does not affirm how wonderful you are. See, that's, if you're like, your life is like mine, there are a lot of things in my life that don't affirm how wonderful I am. And I don't like those things. And if I don't deal with things like Psalm 88, I won't be prepared for those parts of life. We'd all love a life that's easy peasy, lemon squeezy. But in reality, what we get is a life that's easy peasy, lemon difficult. 
Because Psalm 88 does affirm really how hard life is. And you can think of it as practice. Nobody likes practice. Everyone likes the game. You can think of it like practice. So if you're competing for a championship, then you have to do some hard things in practice because you can bet the game will be hard. You can bet that what comes at you in the game will be as hard as it could possibly be. And so you better practice for it. Psalm 88 for us this morning will be practice. There will be a a day that is so hard that you will wonder if God really loves you. Some of you have had that day. Some of you might be in that day right now. But probably most importantly, if you haven't had that day yet, you will. And it's really important that God is able to speak to that hard day. I would be doing you no favors if all I talk about is easy and happy and fluffy things that never address the dark side of life. And I've thought about it. There is an expectation that church is about making you feel happy so that when you leave, you feel happier than when you came in. And many people evaluate church on that criteria. Now, I don't know if you'll leave this morning happier than when you came in. I don't know that any morning. In fact, I don't know that I want to promise that to you any morning. Because I... The question that many people leave asking, did that make me feel good, may not exactly be the right question. In fact, this hunt for good feelings probably reveals something about our own hearts. Something about what we think the Bible is supposed to do in our lives. Something about who we think God is. again, it all does have to do with our expectations. We have this hallmark expectation that no matter how bad things get, they're going to turn out great, like a hallmark movie with a happy ending. But what do you do when the happy ending doesn't come? What do you do when the darkness doesn't lift? What does God have to say about that? Well, this is, this is, I think, what Psalm 88 is about. And I think what God has to say to us when the darkness doesn't lift is this. When life is dark, pray on. When the happy ending doesn't come, keep praying. So Psalm 88 has more or less three parts. I'm going to deal with it anyway in three parts. And I'm going to frame each part in a question. And the questions hopefully will come out of the text. You'll see it. And hopefully it'll be a question that you would ask maybe yourself. 
First question comes from verses 1 through 7, and that's this. What kind of life is it if I have to live with one foot in the grave? If I have one foot in the grave, how could I possibly have a meaningful life? Look at verse 1. A psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master according to the Maalath Leonoth, a mascal of Heman the Ezraite, a song. That's the superscription. It's like the title. It's not even part of the psalm itself, <laughs> but it's the best part in this particular psalm. Let me make several observations about that. The first thing that you should see in that superscription is this. It comes from the last word. It's a song. It's a song. It's a song about the pain of life. You might think it's a dumb song. You might not like to sing it. That doesn't matter. But think about it. Music is the medium for heartbreak. I mean, how many songs do you know about heartbreak? Some of you are country music fans. You know a lot of songs about heartbreak, don't you? Because that's, that's what song does, isn't it? it? It carries that for us. Those of you that aren't country music fans, you'll recognize this, I'm sure. Hello, darkness, mild friend. I've come to talk with you again. You see, we're very familiar with this kind of song. And even as we struggle with the sound of silence, we recognize that that does fit life a lot of times. And maybe you sing anyway. Maybe you need to find not only the tune but the words to sing when Life is hard. So the first thing you should note is that it's a song. The second thing is that it's a special kind of song. It's called a mascal. I think if you go on Spotify and you do a search for mascals, you won't find anything. Because we don't use that word for our songs. But a mascal is a wisdom song performed to music. It's a wisdom song performed to music. In other words, this song is dedicated to conveying wisdom to those who are doing their best to make it through life in a way that's meaningful and purposeful. This song is the, the train that carries the cargo of wisdom to people who need it in order to be skillful in living the way that God wants them to live. So we need to pay attention to this particular song because it comes packing wisdom. And if you think about that, I mean, it is dark and it is sad and it is gloomy and all those things. But that is what wisdom teaches us, isn't it? 
If you think about the way you need to live your life, you need to live your life with maybe one foot in the grave or at least the awareness that that is where I'm headed. And all the things that I do in life are going to someday have to account for that day. In fact, wisdom forces us to ask those questions. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2 says, It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. In other words, the best way to be wise is to make an account of your life. Because that's going to be the end of all of us. And then what? Those who are wise will pay attention to that day. And so that is the superscription. That's the title, the address. It's how we know what kind of a song this is and what it's supposed to do for us. And then he starts out this way. He says, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. This address, he's addressing God. This address is the most positive thing about the entire psalm. He addresses God with his covenant name, Yahweh. In other words, his covenant or promise-keeping name, the name by which God pledges himself to be faithful and true. And then he says, Yahweh, God of my salvation. God of my salvation. Now this title, God of my salvation, is a title that in this psalm cuts both ways. We always like it to cut one way, like, God, you are the God of my salvation. My only hope for being saved is if you save me. And that's true, and that's why he addresses God that way. But it cuts another way, too. And the other way that it cuts is this. It cuts because he's the God of salvation, and yet he's not saved. And yet his life isn't better. And yet pain is everywhere. And the God of salvation isn't saving him. And the problem is not that he doesn't know God. <laughs> the problem is that he does. He knows who God is and he finds that very knowledge to be the thing that's breaking his heart. Now I point that out because for most of us, we want everything simple. Simple as it can be. Like I, I, I want only good days. And I, okay, if I have to have some kind of bad and bad day, I want this nice, easy, well-defined bad thing in a great day so that that bad thing never infects anything good. But the reality is life is much more complicated than that. 
And it's the very fact that we know God that is often the thing that is most painful when he's silent or he doesn't answer. And yet, the focus here in the address is on the character of God, God of my salvation, the one who is a great hope in the time of this despair. And he continues, For my soul is full of trouble. My life draws near to Sheol or to the grave. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. Verse 5, Like one who sat loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those who you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy on me. You overwhelm me with your waves. Selah. He got one foot in the grave, doesn't he? He's very aware that to live is to also die. And that pressure is on him all the time. And whether he's, I think he's, he's probably sick, he's probably lonely, he might be in danger. But nonetheless, he's aware that life is hard. It's probably important for me to say that even though he is speaking directly about death and the impact that the feeling he's about to die has on his life, he's not suicidal. He's not contemplating death as a means of escape. Rather, it appears, if you read it at all carefully, it appears that he's fighting as hard as he can to live. He is searching for reasons to be saved. He's arguing with God to rescue him. In other words, he's doing everything he can to escape Death, as death just kind of nips at his heels all the way through life. It's like we're watching a movie and in the one scene, the, 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 uh, the hero escapes somebody who's, who's uh, shooting at him and he goes around the um, corner and he falls into a pit and there's snakes down there and then the next thing he does, he climbs out and the next thing, and every, every turn, something is going wrong. He's got one foot in the grave. Well, the second movement begins in verse 8, and I'm going to summarize it with this question. Do the dead praise you? What good is it to be dead? You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim with, through sorrow. Every day I call upon you. Oh, Lord, I spread out my hands to you. He finds himself in embarrassment, in a horror to his friends. His eyes are sore and puffy from weeping. Every day. Did you notice that? Every day he calls. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, it's sad and hard and gloomy. And every day he calls. I think if, if you have someone who 
talks to you about the 12 keys to answered prayer. I think you should run and not walk to find a different teacher because you don't always get answered prayer. There is no formula or magic phrase or anything that you can do to make God do what you want Him to do. In fact, all of this is happening and it tells me that praying, praying has value precisely because you don't get an answer. Did that ever occur to you? See, I think a lot of times we think we should pray because God will give us an answer, give us what we want. Maybe the value of prayer is when God doesn't answer and you're locked in the darkness and you still have someone to talk to. And like we sang a few moments ago, He never leaves your side. Verse 10, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up and praise you, Selah? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are you, your wonders known in the darkness and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? What's going on here? He's arguing. I don't know. Maybe you don't do this. Maybe you think you'll lose. But he's arguing with God. He's, he's presenting an argument to God to say, God, this is why you should pay attention. This is why you should rescue me. Because the things you want me to do, I can't do when I'm dead. The things you want people to do, to praise you, to recount your faithfulness or your righteousness. We can't do it if we're dead. It's too late. We're really, really quiet when we're dead. And so he's saying, in effect, get this, God, it's better for you for me not to die. How about that? Because the things that God wants, His wonders recounted, His righteousness and faithfulness exalted, His him, him praise, that can't happen when people are dead. So it's better, <laughs> it's better for God to keep Him alive. I mean, He feels like He's slipping and could go any moment, and He's pleading with God, keep me. Because the things that you want from me or from anybody, we can't do if we're dead. Now, how many of you argue with God that way? Lay out the argument, particularly this argument, right? This argument that, God, you're going to be better off if I'm not dead. Never thought of arguing that way. Maybe because I don't always live that way. Maybe because whether I'm dead or alive, I don't praise Him like I should or recount His wonders or His righteousness. 
and I just kind of go about my business and wonder why life's hard. So I just say that because maybe one of the things you'll want to do is kind of tune up your, um, your frequency with which you praise Him and make part of your life and your mode of operation to praise the Lord on a regular basis while you live because you can't do that when you die. Well, then the third section, beginning in verse 13, is probably the hardest and the most personal. And that is, I'm going to summarize with this question, why are you against me? Why are you against me? As he gets started in verse 13, notice again, he says, but I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. We've seen it earlier a couple times. Now we see it again. Things are not getting better. And he still prays. And his cry still comes before the Lord. This, this isn't a prayer over a meal. This isn't some um, formula prayer that you pray before bedtime. He is crying to the Lord. And then he doesn't quit. And I want to encourage you not to quit. Because suffering is always personal. There isn't a happy ending and the darkness doesn't lift, but he continues to pray. And it may be that if he got relief, if he got what he asked for, maybe he'd stop praying. I don't know. I don't know the mind of the Lord, but I can tell you whether I'm telling you when you're in the middle of the suffering or I'm telling you in advance, the suffering will come so that you will pursue God. The harder you press in, the more hope you have of sweetness in your sorrow. And that's what we see him doing in Psalm 88. But then, notice, because I say that the Lord wants you to pursue him, but it is personal. This is not, <laughs> this is not easy. Look what he says, verse 14. O Lord... Why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me altogether. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Wave after wave after wave of pain comes his way and he knows that God, somehow he knows, right, that God's involved. I think the punchline of this psalm is really how personal it is. 
And all throughout, I mean, I, I highlighted it in this last section, but it's all through the psalm. You have cast my soul away. You hide your face. It's hard enough to be broken and hurting and forsaken without the thought that God is causing it. I want you to stop and just let that sink in for a minute. Because most of us, (laughs) most of us invent a God. We make Him up to be something that we want. We invent a God that has only one gear. He has a positive and a happy gear. It's like, woohoo! Things are going great, God's with me. But what if it isn't going great? Everything else has nothing to do with God. Well, Psalm 88 takes direct aim at that, at that and addresses a God who is involved in the bad as well as the good, the darkness as well as the light, the sorrow as well as the joy. Now, I suspect that there's some synapses firing, thinking, how does this work? I don't know how God would do that. How does this come together? And I'm going to say, I don't really know completely. But I will say that this is a great comfort when you find yourself in the darkness to discover that it's not outside of God's domain. To recognize when you find yourself alone, to realize that you're not alone, that He's there with you, that God somehow, mysteriously perhaps, is intimately involved in the darkness. I think that's one of the chief contributions of this psalm. That God is the God of the darkness as well as the light. Now again, this isn't all computing. Let me, just, let me just point you in this direction. Because we see this most clearly when God himself entered human existence in the person of Jesus. Jesus talked to God like this, like Psalm 88. Jesus said things like this, let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but yours be done. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yes, it's hard to understand how that works. But I would think it'd be hard to understand how it works for Jesus, for sure. Jesus himself experienced the very same things this psalm addresses. Think about that. Most notably, at the moment of of Jesus' greatest darkness, 
his friends all left him. It says that twice in this psalm. You have caused my friends to scatter. So much is this um, the case of Jesus. So much as Psalm 88 reflect the experience of Jesus that many Christian traditions have adopted Psalm 88 as a Good Friday psalm. A psalm that paints the experience of Jesus himself. And so, there is a sense in which Christians can own the darkness better than anyone else because they have a Savior who walked through the darkness ahead of them. Because they have a God who is present with them in the darkness. And Christians don't need to pretend it never gets dark. In fact, it's really beyond that. Because not only did Jesus come and experience the darkness, but we have a Savior who overcame the darkness. He came into this world as the light of the world. The death the psalmist is so preoccupied with was defeated when Jesus rose from the grave. The Scripture is very clear. That Jesus was tried in every way, just like we are. He knows the darkness. He knows the pain. He knows the rejection. All of that. Therefore, He is qualified to represent you before God Himself. I mean, think about it. This psalm was written hundreds of years before Jesus. This psalmist didn't have a risen Savior who was interceding for him. This psalmist didn't have a risen and crucified and risen Savior who conquered death that he so much feared. How much would Psalm 88 be different if he had gotten that, right? If he knew that. I mean, think of the words of verses 10 and 12. Does God do wonders for the dead? That's his question. From his perspective, the answer is no. Because he doesn't have. He doesn't have a Savior who has risen from the dead. He doesn't know that, yes, in fact, God does do wonders for the dead. How about that? That, yes, in fact, that covenant-keeping God does keep his promise, even in death. You didn't know that. But you do. You have this word from God. That you not only have, you, you not only can be honest about the trouble, but you also can have a Savior who walked through the darkness and then conquered it. And I want to leave you with just two more quick implications from Psalm 88. Because the fact that it doesn't ignore the darkness, that it doesn't pretend that darkness doesn't exist, that it doesn't just say, oh, everything's fine, but rather it dives in and admits the darkness. I want you to know that darkness frames 
one of the great opportunities of our time. Because it's not just that we know and admit the darkness as Christians. It's that everybody knows the darkness, don't they? Everybody has times like these. But not everybody has times like these in a Savior who's conquered death. Not everybody has darkness and the light of the world. And so this is an opportunity for the church. Because rather than fearing the darkness or shaking our heads at the darkness or thinking the darkness is coming to get us, we can say, you know what? Yes, it's dark. Can I tell you about the light of the world? Because we have a Savior who brought light into the darkness. And we can share it with people who need it. And so even if you're nervous about sharing the good news, let me just remind you, it is good news. Because everybody has this, but they don't all have God. We can admit the full range of human experience, but we also can say God's in it as opposed to just having the full range of human experience with no hope. Now, I don't know that I've done justice to the sadness or the gloominess of Psalm 88. And if you're not depressed enough, please forgive me. But I want you to notice a couple things before we leave it. There are a couple glimmers of hope, as though there's little flecks of gold down in the dark stream bed. And those flecks of gold are in verses 1 and 9 and 13. We've seen them before, and I've mentioned it before, that each, in each one of those, God uses, or the psalmist uses God's covenant name, Yahweh. God keeps His promises. And when the psalmist uses the name of God that reflects God keeping His promises, there's light. Look at it. Verse 1, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night. Day and There's some light there. Just a glimmer. Or verse 9, My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day, I, every day, I call upon you, O Lord, Yahweh. Every day, when you call upon the Lord and you don't give up, there's light. Look again in verse 13. But I, O Lord, Yahweh, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes. In the morning, even though it's dark, there is morning. And here, laying in this dark stream bed, are these glimmers of hope because of who God is, so that He can keep His promise. And He can send His Son as the light of the world to, to bring light into the darkness. And so we can have the full range of human experience. We can admit it, but we get God with that experience. And let me just remind you, 
It is a privilege beyond belief to, to have a life that has light in it. To be included in the promise of Jesus the Savior. I, I hope that when you hit that dark time, you'll find those glimmers and you'll keep praying. And I hope that you'll be awake and you'll love people enough to not be embarrassed to say, I know it's dark. I have a little light. Let me share it with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that sometimes the, the darkness frames the light. Thank you that you are worth crying out to even in the hardest time. So, Father, I pray that even this exercise in reading this hard psalm would bolster our souls so that we might not be swayed and we might not give up and we might not collapse under the weight of the darkness. But instead, we might hang on to the hope. We might find, we might find reason Pursue you and find joy, even in the midst of a hard life. Thank you for what you've given us in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.